a lot of the films in America are made with a great many computer-generated images. And this is a, another kind of artistry. This isn't the kind of artistry that uh, I grew up working with. It's a whole new generation of artists that are making the films of, of today. They're, they're interesting, but different. Hello and welcome to 2013, and before you break any more resolutions, why not ring out the old with your host, me, Phil Walsh. And me, Jim Hall, as we look back over some notable releases from the past 12 months for Midnight Videos 2012 special. So the Christmas decorations are coming down, people are heading back to work, and just to compound your January blues, here we are, <laughs> doing our first show, probably noticeably uh, using the miracle of Skype. Um, is it I'm currently or is it more like John the Baptist? <laughs> well, I'm shouting at an iPad at the moment, um, <laughs> so if there's terrible sound on this, which there will be, it's my fault, I'm afraid. But beaming out at me on a screen with a bit of Pause is uh, the wonderful features of Phil Walsh over in France. How are you doing? Hello, I'm, I'm doing good, thanks. Even though I've, got, I've still got my funny finger. If anyone, uh, <laughs> if anyone's been following me on Twitter or friends with me on Facebook, they'll know I had a bit of an accident uh, in November and nearly managed to remove my finger from my hand. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm improving in uh, that respect. You did feature on the 50 Most Appalling Gardening Accidents countdown. <laughs> I should, was that on Channel 4 with Stuart McConey? Uh, yes, our friend Matt Nieder was producing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, uh, I'm all good, thanks, uh, over here in France. I've, I've moved now, um, hence the, uh, the not-so-great miracle of Skype. But, uh, yeah, settled down, got a new baby, uh, moving into a new house again soon, um, currently off work, but I have a job, and, yeah, like, life is sweet. It's, it's uh, oh, what was that terrible, um, terrible Russell Crowe film? Is it, it? Oh, A Good Year. A Good Year. That was set in Provence, I think. Yeah, yeah that was Ridley Scott. Thank God he's done some uh, brilliant films since then. <laughs> Oh dear! And you, Jim? How are you getting on? You're still stuck in the big smoke. Yes, uh, yeah. My my two year contract archiving photos came to an end, but starts up again on Monday. So technically, I'm, I've had a Christmas break, which is technically me being sacked for three weeks. But uh, <laughs> it means I'll be in employment for the whole of next year, hopefully. Like some Gilliam S nightmare. <laughs> well, it was. I think the last batch of photos I archived were mostly the, the German fleet from World War One being sunk at Scapa Flow, followed by Bernie Winters and Schnorbitz. <laughs> I really hope You're... everyone listening to this understands that. Yeah, it tends to chump around a bit, the sort of quality of stuff we're doing. Talking of which... <laughs> yeah, here you find us. Um, well, I mean, the idea for this show basically is a rundown of 2012. Um, because we've had so much time off, um, we didn't think it would be the best idea to just jump straight back into the old format. 
Um, this breaks it up a little bit. Um, we'll have some more news later on about what we plan to do for the rest of the show. Um, and yeah, I guess we're trying to look at films that yeah we've seen in 2012, that are new in 2012, but also some new discoveries from yesteryear. Yeah, I mean, certainly for my part, this isn't my top 10 of the year. Um, what we've basically done in the last few days is, is got our heads together and come up with a list of 11 films that we've both seen, I think with one exception independently of each other, but we've not really talked about on the show before. And uh, I'm not sure we actually know each other's opinions on most of them. So, uh, although I think Phil can guess. Yeah, with you. And I've been following you on Twitter and Facebook, so I know some of the films you've watched in the last few days... Uh, I know some of your opinions there. So, um, Vicariously, so, though, uh, you know, I might have a different opinion for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you're so flighty. <laughs> but, yeah, um, we're just going to go through that, and then there's a there's a few others that we've not both seen, but so uh, this, this certainly isn't a definitive list of their favourites or anything. <laughs> anyway, Phil, do you want to kick off? Do people still shoot at presidents? I thought they were more stimulating targets. So, yeah, as people regular listeners to the show will know that I've uh, made the move from the UK to France now and um, that meant that I missed Fright Fest this year which was I was a little bit sad about but um, greener pastures and all that but I will be coming back this year that's that's for sure and one of the films that I was greatly looking forward to I think it might have been like the the main draw for this year's Fright Fest was Peter Strickland's Barbarian Sound Studio. Strickland, I knew who did Catalan uh, Varga a few years ago, a Romanian revenge film with a quite extraordinary soundtrack of um, uh, people like Nurse with Wound, who are um, strange British electronic experimental music. And the whole feel of the film was very... Um, it was a film fan, but not like a Tarantino way of making a, a movie. It was more uh, subtle and like the kind of guy who comes from Reading would make a film, I guess. I think he's from Reading anyway. But yeah, Barbarian Sound Studio, Toby Jones, Mark Commode, and Simon Mayo's favourite actor, it seems, apart from Jason Isaacs, if anyone listens to their podcast. Um, I think they possibly do. <laughs> and yeah, it's tale of a a sound engineer in the what, 70s uh, who goes to um, Italy to do the sound effects for a, a film over there that's being made, which we're led to believe is a giallo stroke horror, and it just becomes a personal nightmare for him. Um, and I watched it on the Kurds and Cinema um, View on Demand option that they've got now so you can watch it basically online at home but you have to pay the price of a, t- a London uh, cinema ticket <laughs> which is a little bit annoying <laughs> but I did get to watch it I watched it in the pitch black without any other people there with my headphones on which is also a nice experience because this is a very uh, sonic movie and yeah I absolutely loved it it was no surprise to me that I was I was going to love it anyway and um yeah, it was bang up there, and if I had to say it was in my top three, it would be probably joint number one, in fact. Um, we'll talk about the other one that I loved as much later. But yeah, an absolutely cracking film, brilliant performance from Toby Jones, exquisite sound design, beautiful visuals, and just a really 
really nice ambiguous feel to the film, almost lynching, I guess. That's an obvious pointer. Um, what do you reckon, Jim? Yeah, well, um, I didn't go to Fright Fest either this year, but I did meet up with some of the, the, the listeners um, uh, who were attending. And I was interested to hear what people were making of the of the Fright Fest so far. It was on a Saturday afternoon, so it had been going for a few days already. And it was interesting. I mean, um, it did seem like things like Cockneys versus Zombies was getting an, and people were unusually, um, you know, surprised how much they'd enjoyed that because it sounded absolutely terrible. Barbarian Sound Studio, which everyone was looking forward to, and last year when we went, the buzz was around Kill List and The Woman, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, the Woman seemed pretty divisive, and I think this year, Barbarian Sound Studio, a lot of people really liked it, but there were quite a lot of people for whom it uh, it seemed to fall flat. Um, I just watched this a few days ago. Uh, it's just come out on DVD um, in the UK. Um I quite liked it, but it, it didn't really knock me out by any means. Um, by the, it's not that long a film, is it? It's about ninety minutes. Yeah, yeah. But I think you can tell from that setup that uh, Phil just described. It's going to be very claustrophobic. I'd imagine it was quite a low budget film. In fact, I think it was uh, part funded by the lottery. Possibly, yeah. I think it actually was like a low. They specifically said it was a low budget <laughs> lottery um, funding. But yeah, it is. It, it looks great. Um, there is something really intriguing about um, that whole world of sound design and Foley artists. Toby Jones, I really like. Uh, it was just with this, given it's only 90 minutes, it really did feel like it would have worked a lot better as a maybe a 20 minute short or even shorter than that. And when I was looking the film up, it turned out it was actually originally a short film, I think. And I just feel it probably would have worked better with that because it didn't entirely hold my attention. Uh, it was possibly because I was watching it in the daytime, but I think also from that setup, you sort of know where it's going to wind up. Um, that's no bad thing. And I think what they do at the end when, um, it, yeah, life becomes much more of, I think to begin with, Toby Jones is just going out to Italy and people seem to be obstructing him all the time and taking advantage of him. There's that kind of, nightmare but then it becomes a lot more like a conventional horror film maybe that's cruel to say conventional it's still a very unusual movie um but yeah i just felt it took a long time to get to this ending which you sort of knew was coming anyway but it was quite original how they did that i guess yeah no yeah i can see where you're coming from and i think a lot of other people have had the same kind of misgivings about it um but it's really my kind of film um it's, it appeals to me on all the levels, um, aesthetically, sonically, and just the, just the general idea behind it is absolutely fascinating to me. And I know that Peter Strickland's he's a big fan of kind of um, avant-garde music. So coming from that background and similar um, similar, um, he says he shares similar passions to me musically. It was. It felt for me like it. It was delivering um, a film for me personally, almost in some ways. And I guess that would probably begin to alienate a large part of an audience. But then again, I mean, who who who's this aimed at? Uh, it's pretty niche anyway. Um, I mean, I could imagine anyone could watch it and definitely pick up what's going on. But I think maybe if you were a particular fan of seventies Italian horror. I mean, there's a lovely bit right at the beginning. I don't think they give the title Bavarian Sound Studio till the very end, do they? The start of the film is actually the titles to this 
uh, film that he's working on. Oh, the, which, the Equestrian Vortex? It's a great title. Yeah, and it's a really spot-on kind of... It looked, it did look a lot like those uh, 70s uh, film titles, but also a little like some of Harry Gilliam's animations as well. Yeah. From yeah. Monty Python. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed that. I mean, I... Like I say, for me, it didn't quite hit the mark. It, it, it felt like maybe a little over long. Mm-hmm. No, understood, understood. Well, that brings us very neatly to uh, a film that I was really looking forward to seeing, and I actually got to see it with you in um, Cineworld Haymarket, I think. Yes, yeah, I think that might have been my first time there. So, yeah, the next film we're covering is David Cronenberg's Cosmopolis. Um, so yeah, that came out quite a few months back, and yeah, I think it had a bit of a a bit of a buzz around it. Um, but ultimately, I think a lot of people found this disappointing for the same kind of reasons. Uh, overlong, didn't seem to go anywhere. Um, you're you're starting to nod at me down the screen because <laughs> yeah, we did watch this together. We didn't discuss it on the show though, but I remember afterwards you were pretty disappointed in it. I was, yeah, I was very underwhelmed, to be honest. Um, uh, Cronenberg has a a very rich history of adapting films and making them um, his own, but also really getting to the crux of the story quite often, or at least picking up on very pertinent points. Um, This just felt a bit too old and jaded, really, like the, the ideas and notions behind it kind of all been explored before um, um it felt too literal for me it was the dialogue felt like he he just it just been written from delilo's um, novel which i haven't read but it it didn't feel cronenbergian enough even though the look of it the style um the uh, the strangeness of it was quite appealing I, I, and I was wondering, I mean, I've, I've thought about this a lot, a lot. <laughs> I've thought about this a bit after. Um, my wife watched it recently on TV and in French, dubbed into French, unfortunately. And it had the same effect. I, my French isn't that good, but I still found myself quite distanced from it and not really drawn into it at all. Um which I guess, if you're not a fan of Cronenberg, you could easily level that claim at him, but I'd consider myself a fan, and it still left me pretty cold. Yeah, um, I really like this. Uh, I've got to say, I've not been in a rush to go and watch it again uh, now it's out on DVD. But no, the, when we were watching it, I was really enjoying it, and possibly for a lot of the reasons uh, that people don't like it. I mean, it's an obvious point, but the fact that... Um, Pattinson's character in it, who's this um, billionaire, I guess, is he? He's a very rich guy going around, cruising around in his limo, and the plot, such as it is, as it is, is just a bunch of obstructions as he tries to get to um, have a haircut. It's very episodic, so it doesn't really feel like it's progressing. You've got no idea how far through the running time of the film you are, and that was kind of my one criticism, is there was certainly a point when it felt it could have come to an end. And then it went on for seemingly another 20 or 30 minutes. Is that with the poor well, the, the, the extension? Yeah. Jimati's character comes into it, yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but I enjoyed it for the, for the reason. I think a lot of people have criticised it because they did find it too cold. Um, you never really got to know Pattinson's character. He seemed a complete blank, um, which I think was the point. I think people realise that, but it's, it doesn't make necessarily for a very enjoyable film uh, viewing experience. You're putting your good finger up in the air. <laughs> yes. I was. I was. I, it was interesting to watch. Uh, I think it was the either the last or the penultimate episode of the culture show and Cronenberg was interviewed by Mark Kermode and he was saying that um, Patterson's character, the way it was written for the film, maybe it's the same for the book, um, he's just a cipher and this was quite difficult for Patterson to, to grasp, you know, he wasn't actually someone that anyone could relate to, he's just like an idea kind of thing. Because, yeah, we're both Cronenberg fans. I mean, Dead Zone's one of your all-time favourites, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it's up there. It's up there. Uh, But, yeah, recently I watched um, Crash again. I've not seen that for a little while, but I watched it with a friend of mine who'd never seen it, or I think he possibly vaguely remembered it coming out um, and the controversy around it. But it's one of those things when there's a film you like and then if you're watching it with someone else, you're aware of how much they're not enjoying it. And I think it hadn't occurred to me before that most of Cronenberg films do have that kind of blankness to them. Mm-hmm. I think we might get uh, drawn in by the effects and, you know, there's a lot of nostalgia for them. But, yeah, I think for someone new coming to them, a, a movie like Crash, I think is kind of similar to Cosmopolis. The, the characters in that are complete blanks and that's kind of the point of it, that they're not really... Um, having much emotional investment with anybody else. Yeah, no, that, that's yeah, definitely. I think that's a fair enough point, and I think he's always done those kind of films. He's carved his niche, I guess, and mm-hmm. buried himself in. <laughs> well, just as an aside, another movie I've uh, just watched recently was the other Cronenberg that was released uh, very early this year. Well, twenty twelve. Um, a Dangerous Method, which I wasn't looking forward to. I have tried to watch M. Butterfly recently and found it hard going, or it, nothing of much interest to me. I should really give it another whiz. But this I was expecting to not really get into. But I did, you know, for what it's worth, I did I did quite enjoy a Dangerous Method. I was prepared to not like it because I'd heard so much about um, Kira Knightley's performance as someone with uh, mental problems just being her sticking her chin out. <laughs> And she did resemble a Gumby from Monty Python for quite a lot of it. But uh, no, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't wildly recommend Dangerous Method, but I thought it was pretty decent. I, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah, I've, I've seen the first half an hour in, again, dubbed into French. And this is a problem, a recurring problem living in France is that all films, well, 80% of films are dubbed into French. So uh, is this why Barbarian Sound Studio really ran true with you? <laughs> Quite. It's redubbing nightmare. That's quite, yeah, that, quite possibly. You never know. Anyway, enough of Cronenberg. <laughs> well, <laughs> cheers, David. Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. Anyway, next on the list. Next on the list for me was, well, it's uh, it's actually an old film. It's a documentary. I think it's the only documentary. No, it's the second documentary that we're going to cover. Um and this was came I think it came out a couple of years ago uh, it's called Blank City and it's about the the no wave generation of filmmakers in New York such as Jim Jarmusch, Amos Poe um, etc and it was I basically wanted to watch it because a few years ago I saw 
amazing music documentary called Kill Your Idols, which was about the music scene of that particular moment in time, which I really love, sort of post-punk, post-British punk, post-American punk, new wave, and it was just a big creative melting pot at the time. Um, so I wanted to see it for that. I didn't know that much about the cinema of that period, certainly not Amos Poe stuff, and that was quite revel revelatory. Um, all these people um, living in these empty apartment blocks, people like John Lurie from uh, the Lounge Lizards and who went on to work with John Moosh and, you know, the the way that they were like sort of filmmaking outlaws, you know, they were stealing their equipment or they were buying hooky equipment and just making any films they could, very influenced by people like the French New Wave, the Godard and stuff. So they were kind of, it's... It's unsurprising that the the no wave were influenced by the new, the French new wave, but there was something really fascinating about this. There was it was even it seems to be even more DIY than what punk was uh, exclaimed to be. I found and the whole uh, documentary is chronological and it takes in it's New York centric. Obviously, it takes in everything that's going on around there and. I found that a little bit lacking in some ways. I'd like to have seen some parallels going on around the world, but you know, it, I guess there's a limit to what a, a documentary filmmaker can do. Um, but overall, I loved it. The talking heads were great. Lydia Lunch always delivers. She's just a moaning bitch, wishing that people would just like get out there and do it for real. And, I don't know. It was just a really insightful film. Uh, no, no great shakes on the documentary filmmaking front, but if you want a little piece of niche cinema history, then go to this, I reckon. Yeah, I mean, you say no great shakes on the documentary making, but that's... I don't mind that. Sometimes it's just <laughs> the purity of the information coming through is, is good rather than people trying to cut in uh, old film clips and stuff. Not pertinent ones to what they're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think ever since Errol Morris did The Thin Blue Line, people have been using that old technique. Anyway, um, yeah, I'd not heard of this until I saw your top ten list, uh, which you put up on uh, Facebook and, uh, and and your blog a few weeks back. Um, actually, I'd never heard of it. I think I had. It rang a bell once I actually looked up the trailer, and I was very interested from that trailer because, yeah, I think we've all heard of Jim Jarmusch and John Waters. I'd heard of Lydia Lunch and a few of the others, but uh, Nick Zed, is it? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but a lot of these people, Amos Poe, I don't think I had heard of or had not stuck in my memory anyway. Mm. But the trailer did look very exciting. And I think, as you say, it's New York. It's uh, mostly through the American punk and, and later. It's kind of the 70s. And almost, yeah, it does feel like the musical movements that are happening then are completely intertwined with it. So, I mean, certainly I'm a huge fan of Talking Heads uh, television, and to some extent those are the CBGB bands. Uh, they all kind of, that was their home. Um, I'm not a massive fan of rap and breakdancing, but it's always really interesting to watch that because you can really feel the ethos behind it. I'm going to say that was some of the best stuff in this. It was more when the films reflected what was happening musically. Because um, as excited as I was about watching this, I've got to say, have you actually followed up and watched any of the films it covers? Uh, I've seen Do stuff we... like Downtown 81. I, I've seen Jarmusch's films. Um, I've never seen any of the Nick Zed stuff. Yeah, but a lot of the actual films did look fairly unwatchable, I've got to say. <laughs> the stuff uh, of nightmares. 
Oh, yeah. It's kind of vaguely interesting to watch short clips. And yeah, I mean, you, I'm, I'm certainly not going to put anyone down for actually getting on and, and, and making a film. Um, and it, as we all appreciate, back then, actually just getting hold of a camera in the film stock was amazingly expensive. It wasn't like now when you can, well, yeah, we're, we're shouting down Skype at each other at the moment. So <laughs> with very little effort. Um but yeah, something that was interesting to me on this was the, the the filmmakers who have then broken out, or even some of the musicians, Debbie Harry features on it quite a bit. But certainly Jim Jarmusch and John Waters come across as very personable and, you know, pleasant fellows. Whereas the people who were probably big on that scene but haven't gone on to any great commercial or critical success seemed incredibly bitter. Mm. Did you get that? And yeah. quite self-aggrandizing as well. It was, yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, I, I guess that's probably across the board, though. Adam, oh, yeah. if you go into any sort of, like, look into any niche scene, there's always... I I, I, I did find it funny, because I think at the end, like, there's... It's almost the last scene of it that John Mushi is saying, you know, like, let's not dwell on this. Let, look, let's look forward. Yeah. And it's kind of like... I totally agree with you. You've made it. That's very easy for you to say, but there's all these people behind you who are really bitter, and this is the the, the soapbox that they've got now. So it's, it's amusing. Yeah. Okay. Um, so next up, another kind of documentary, I suppose. Um, but yeah, no. The, the next film is um, something which we saw last year. It, it was a preview screening, and I think it's probably been doing the rounds at... Um, maybe festivals, or it's had a lot of preview screenings, and I think it did come out in America, but I don't think it comes out in the UK for a, f- a month or so yet, um, which might tell you something. <laughs> uh, this is Graham Chapman, uh, a liar's autobiography, so probably about the third mention of Monty Python already uh, uh, in this show. Um, but yeah, no, we, we got to see a preview of it. It's basically Graham Chapman of Monty Python reading from his book, Elias Autobiography, which, as the, as the title suggests, covers his life, but in quite a sort of um, over-the-top fashion. It doesn't take itself terribly seriously. He's a very good raconteur. And I think the soundtrack of this is mostly Chapman reading it out himself, maybe for an audio book. Although I think most of the other Pythons... Possibly, it was Eric Idle wasn't involved, I don't think. No, I don't, I don't think so, no. Maybe, maybe he had better things to do. Um, it, it, certainly to me, it felt like it was a, a, like a, a jigsaw of mm. outtakes from interviews and whatnot from the, yeah. the Pythons. I don't, were they, was it done specifically, do you think? I think the, um, the other Pythons do contribute some of the voices in stories, if it's being read out, they'll do voices for some of the other characters. But, yeah, I imagine it was done piecemeal, certainly. But um, the whole thing's then, to make it into a film, has been done episodically with animations, lots of different animations. It's an anthology of styles. Um, I was looking forward to this, although I had some reservations about what it was going to be like. Um, (laughs) Phil, what did you think of this? I thought it was terrible. It was... Yes! (laughs) It was really bad. Um, I don't like to say that in such an offhand way because, you know, obviously there was a lot of effort went into it. Um, I'd just rather read his book, to be honest. It it didn't do anything that you wouldn't need to imagine yourself in your head reading his book or listening to him reading uh, the audio book. 
it was it was just trying to be trying to be too clever for its own good and probably too worshipful of him. Yeah, no, uh, completely. Um, I've I've got to say I like the animation in this. I think it was a good showcase, and the the animation across the board was really good. I like the fact it was an anthology, but the, the main problem there is. Chapman wrote this as a book, mostly. There are some interview uh, some interview footage in it as well. But it was written as a book and intended to be kind of... That was how the information was going to come across. There's no point to really trying to put some visual thing there to back it up or actually kind of hamstring it, I felt, because you can imagine if a joke's written out uh, in a book, in an anecdote, in an anecdotal way, and then someone's done an animation, often that preempts it, or does the joke sec- seconds after you've already got the gist of it? So, um, but that's not unusual. I mean, I know Ricky Gervais's podcast was turned in. They sort of took those podcasts and turned those into animations, and it had exactly the same problem of you've already got the joke from what they're saying. You don't need something else to visually. You don't need the visual gag to underline it. It's, it's... Yeah, well, it doesn't underline it. It either preempts it so the joke's pointless to hear, or they've already said the joke and you don't need someone showing it afterwards. Mm. So a lot of effort must have gone into this, but I really think it was a bad idea to begin with. Um, and yeah, I do feel a bit bad saying that because, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Python and. Graham Chapman does hold a strange fascination, possibly because he didn't go on to as many and varied solo projects as the others, and obviously died way too early. But, um, yeah, um, <laughs> I'm afraid I can't really recommend this. Shut your festering gob, you tit! Another great film that I saw this year, um, which I, I really regretted not seeing at the cinema. I think it's the only film that I, I wish I could go back in time and watch at the cinema, because... It, That's the next Back to the Future film. <laughs> but it played for ages where I was near where I was living in uh, Hackney, Dalston, because there's a big Turkish community, and the film is called Once Upon a Time in, Atoli- in Anatolia. Quite a remarkable film um, that, at, at its simplest, it's um, a police procedural that takes place over one night. Um, it becomes more than that. It becomes more than that, obviously, through the dialogue, and um, it, it becomes a film about a, atonement, I guess, or sins of the parents in some ways. And it gets very deep and philosophical, but throughout, it's shot in um, this amazing. The cinematography is quite extraordinary. The, I guess it reminds me a little bit of Christopher Doyle, who does stuff with One Car Y. He create something that's not quite of this earth um the light is so obviously not natural light and the takes are very long and you're never really quite sure what's going on it's a slow moving languorous film that it's an art house film i guess it'd be lumped in with that it's a sight and sound favorite um it is a piece of art for me. Is it? it was absolutely stunning. Blew me away. I mean, I watched it twice in the same week, and it's not a film that you'd rush back to generally. I think, but I, I was quite blown over by it. I have a sneaky suspicion Jim might not feel entirely the same way. <laughs> not entirely. I mean, I did. I did like this. Uh, I completely agree with you about the sort of cinematography or just the whole look of it. It does have an, an, an earthly look to it, which 
Yeah, I really liked. I mean, it's weirdly back when we reviewed Man from London yeah. very early on in the, in the show, which I hated because it felt like it was something that took a potentially interesting crime story. This is Man from London, the Bellatar movie, and just sucked all the life out of it and left you with this husk that went on and on with accordion music, um, <laughs> which, which didn't really sweeten the pill at all. This felt like they got that right, because uh, it is, as you say, police procedural, um, but that doesn't seem to matter. That really seems like a hook to hang this thing on. It's mostly about some older characters who are sort of contemplating their current situation, things that have happened to them in the past. It yeah, gets quite philosophical and maybe metaphysical even at mm. some points. Uh, there's a big discussion about witnessing an event um, and people's interpretations of it. And yeah, I, I really did quite like that. It is very leisurely. And yeah, I did go in maybe with some trepidation because what I remember of this when it came out much earlier in the year was um, the bit that stuck in my head was someone saying there's a tracking shot of an apple rolling down a hill, going into a stream and then rolling down the stream, which goes on for a couple of minutes. I think that was um, Tim Newman on the film programme. Yes, uh, it was definitely on the film programme. I it can't was remember. Tim Newman. But... Um, yeah, this 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 sort of works. I'm not going to say it was like knock me knock me out, but I did I did quite enjoy it, and especially it's maybe unfair of me to say because I've got to say I've never watched Inspector Morse or Frost or any of these shows, but the comparison with those where you have an older an older police uh, a policeman who's possibly sort of tying the crimes in with his old his old ethos on life, and this version which was. Uh, Quite impressive, yeah. <laughs> Which takes us nicely to the amazing wow. Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I went to see this at the pictures when it came out in the summer. Um, we are going to be talking about uh, some more franchise movies. Uh, it's not all going to be um, subtitles uh, for this show. But yeah, I've got to say this was not too impressive. Um partly because there have been so many better franchise movies this year. But it, yeah, this, it didn't seem to do anything fresh. Actually, that's a bit unfair. You, you could see things that they'd changed from the previous three films. There's a lot of complaints that, is it too soon to reboot this franchise? And I think they could have got away with just doing another Spider-Man film, but in a slightly different direction. Because one of the things is his origin is so complex, isn't it? Compared to Batman, who just his parents get shot. With here, you've got to go through all complex. Sorry, is that complex or convoluted? Yes. Okay, convoluted. (laughs) But yeah, you. you, If you're familiar with Spider-Man at all, I'm sure most of us are. You know that you've got to go through having him as the nerd, having him get bitten, then having discovering his powers very slowly, um, and that whole stuff with his uncle ben you know spoilers spoilers ahead there but it felt like you were wasting i was desperate for it to get past the origin so we could get onto the i was going to say the meat of the film but ultimately that was just another as with the previous films a scientist whose uh well-intentioned project gets away from him this didn't really do anything for me i feel they really need to raise their game if they're going to do these kind of films now but i, I understand spider-man is a very appealing character um yeah, I, uh, yeah, it just didn't really measure up to several other films this year, <laughs> playing around in the same sandbox. <laughs> yeah, no, I watched it uh, last night, actually, and 
Yeah, I feel the same way, basically. You've hit every nail on the head there. Um, I've got nothing against Garfield. I thought he was great. In fact, I preferred him to uh, Tobey Maguire. Yeah. And I was tweeting with people, and friend of the show, Giles Edwards, made a good point of saying that the one thing this franchise didn't do was the sort of... Um, the the overtly emo- emotional sort of... Uh, tugging of heartstrings that seem to in, infest the last three, like the Raimi films, you know, that with great power comes with great responsibility. The focus is taking a bit more, it, it became a bit more human, um, mm-hmm. which which I did like. I thought Garfield was great. Um, Emma Stone is Emma Stone in every film. I, I don't see the big fuss about her, apart from her being quite pretty. But I'd totally forgotten about her until you just mentioned her. <laughs> quite. <laughs> Um, it's nice to see Rissy fans doing a big film like that. He's a bit of a lost talent, I think, on these shores these days. Uh, mm. Not seeing Mr. Nice. Dennis Leary, always welcome to see him. But yeah, overall, just added nothing new. The origin story reminded me how amazing the Batman Begins origin story was because it reinvigorated a, uh, a franchise completely. It brought fresh new ideas to it. This didn't do anything in that same way. It was like kind of watching uh, a 15 version of the Raimi uh, origin story, I'd say, at best. And and when the baddie came, it's like all the other baddies. He's just a bit... Mm, he's, I don't know. He's not that bad. <laughs> yeah, because like, like I say, with the, the, the Goblin and Dr. Octopus in the Raimi films, they seem to be the stress that they were scientists whose projects sent them a bit round the twist <laughs> a bit um and yeah it's just like and i know for the next film i think it's meant to be jamie fox's electro or something oh right I this see. doesn't i mean it looks like they're maybe trying to build them into a trilogy or something i think there is going to be a thread and a mystery running through them but i i wasn't impressed with this at all i mean i, I dare say i'll probably watch the next one but um no this this really fell very short didn't do anything particularly no, <laughs> the, no. What a thing to say. Obviously, a Spider-Man film just has to entertain you, but actually, no, it doesn't. I think now you do have to do something else. And also, I thought I thought the CGI was pretty ropey as well. Uh, no, nothing, nothing special. No. Nothing, nothing like um, Leos Carrex's Holy Motors. Yeah, this is an unusual sandwich we've just built with Anna, one, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, Spider-Man, and now Holy Motors. <laughs> <laughs> so go on. Yeah, well, Holy Motors. I, I, I did allude to before if I had a top three uh, Barbarian Sound Studio would be joint number one and with Holy Motors. Um, yeah, France's contribution via Leos Carax um, of many years ago, the Cinema du Luc, I guess it would be involved with the likes of Jean-Jacques Benyex. We covered IP5 on the show. But Holy Motors for me was mind-blowing. Again, it was another Curzon on-demand, watch on my laptop, headphones, pitch black room. And it just delivered. Again, everything that I want, um, the obscure references, the the absurdity, the surreality of it all, the amazing use of sound, um, lynching motifs, uh, Georges Franju, an old French filmmaker who... He did scobs in the film and 
she's alluded to and I, everything just it was overwhelming but I, I just want to mention one scene because we were talking about CGI on the Spider-Man review and um, many years ago as a 13 year old I think my uh, stepdad took me into the Odeon Leicester Square to watch a 15, my first 15 certificate film underage and it was the low moment. I was so excited about seeing this because of all the virtual reality, the special effects and stuff. And there's a love scene in there between uh, Jeff Fahey and, I don't know, the uh, actress. But they're sort of morphing together and stuff. And Carax does this again in um, a motion capture, sort of post-Load of the Rings kind of uh, take on it. And it is one of the most remarkable sequences you will ever see in a film, I think, of the last few years. It, it really knocked me for six. It verged on the sort of computer gaming sort of idea, aesthetic, but it just went a little bit beyond that. And the fact that it's in the middle of this strange film about a guy who's living various roles in this life, you, you don't know quite what he's doing, if it's a job or... It's it's an odd one, but I I absolutely adopt yeah. it. I mean I mean the setup here is um, I've forgotten the actor's name. Is it Dennis Dennis Levant? Levant, yeah. Levant. Um, who yeah we're not really sure what's going on with him. He's driving around in a stretch limo. Um, he has various appointments, but they involve him putting on all this makeup and assuming roles for kind of skits. Can I say that? Yeah. yeah. He'll appear as these characters for. Yeah, several minutes, uh, very lengths of time. One of them is as a motion capture artist. I've got to say this left me completely cold and <laughs> baffled. And when I was looking through lots of people's lists of, you know, their, their, their picks of 2012, this was very prominent. So, and it did sound intriguing when it came out. And I love that the title, Holy Motors, really suggests something quite ambiguous and profound. I'm absolutely baffled what the appeal of this is. I was down the pub last night with their friends, Steve and Jack from the, the South London Hardcore podcast, and they were haranguing me for not really getting what this was about. <laughs> However, most of the reviews I've read of it seem to generally describe the setup, but then go, what's it all about? Well, who can say? And, you know, I can absolutely accept people can just get sucked into the whole aesthetic of it, or it creates a strange atmosphere that people like. But for me, this I'm, I'm, I really don't understand what the appeal of this was. I, I found the main character and the characters he played just awful. Um, <laughs> Even uh, with Eva Mendes. Yes. He sustained, <laughs> the good he sustained wood. <laughs> but no, I mean, one of the main characters he plays in that sequence, it's, is it a character called Mr. Shit? Mm. He looks a bit like um, Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull <laughs> with, with a wonky eye. But he just goes around biting the heads off flowers and causing a lot of Ubu-style uh, trouble. I, I really didn't get into this. If I want to see a Frenchman in grotesque makeup, I'll watch a Pink Panther film. <laughs> He's not even French. Well, the character is. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah. I, no, by the end of this, I mean, we won't describe the finale of it, but it doesn't really... really <sighs> what was this about? Does it need to be about anything? Don't you think um, it could I suppose be philosophical it or uh, a life? Because Leo's character, he had a bit of a 
a down patch after he made Polar X, which it, it was a critical failure, commercial failure the, with the Scott Walker soundtrack. Maybe I, I felt, you know, because the film opens up with him as well. It's him going into the cinema and stuff. And uh, this. No, it, it just annoyed me, I'm afraid. <laughs> but I know, well, I know I'm in a minority in terms of people who've reviewed it, certainly. I'm sure you're not reading the right reviews. I think you need to read <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of people who agree with you. Oh, no, no, no. Um, right. Well, yeah, leaping on again. Something a little more um, multiplex friendly. Next, uh, Looper. Ah, but is it multiplex friendly? Um, I'm going to say it is. It, I mean... Yeah, no, it, it totally is. <laughs> well, yeah, I know what you're getting at, which is maybe it was a bit smarter than a lot of Bruce Willis time travel films might be. Not um, than 12 Monkeys. <laughs> I preferred it to 12 Monkeys. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, again, I'm, I'm sure people know this. Bruce Willis and Gordon Joseph, I think I called him Gordon the Gopher. Um, <laughs> Gordon Joseph Levitt as an earlier Bruce Willis. But yeah, I'll, I'll, let's not go in. I'm sure people know what the setup of this is. It's a time travel paradox um, action movie. Um I'm gonna, the reason I was hesitating on the multiplex thing is this by no means appeared and flopped, did it? It was something that really lingered at cinemas, uh, well, certainly in England. It, it lingered at cinemas for quite a long time. I mean, as we record this, Skyfall's been out for something like two months, and I think that's still got showings on, at, even in Peckham. So that's that's been a success. And this, again, I really felt it was going to be on for two weeks, but it, it went on for a long time. So I think it's really had... Um, found a big audience and probably a lot of word of mouth um, uh, did it great favours. I wasn't, from the trailer, I wasn't really looking forward to this too much. I generally don't like uh, smart-ass time travel paradox movies. Um, but no, and um, I've forgotten the name of the director. It's the guy who did Brick, isn't it? Ryan Johnson. I really didn't like Brick at all. That, like Holy Motors, just totally lost me, uh, the whole style of it. But no, I, I enjoyed this a lot. I'm not going to say, yeah, I'm, I think it probably would be one of my best films of the year. Um, although I'm a bit surprised to say that. But I think it was that it didn't it didn't miss a beat. You know, I, I, there were so many times it could have screwed up, but actually it was it was entertaining. It did something quite fresh with the ideas. You know, it wasn't like oh, I've seen this done a zillion times before. It worked as a good action movie. I really like looking at Emily Blunt. Um <laughs> No, I, I I could imagine this becoming a bit of a classic. I'm a big fan of Brick, and I really love Brothers Bloom, which uh, Ryan Johnson is. I think he's a very accomplished filmmaker. I think he knows everything that he wants, and he gets it on the screen, and he does it um, without a hiccup, generally, it seems, because he's, he's done three for three now for me. Um, Brick's probably still my favourite because it's... I like the idea behind Brick more because it, it is it's very conceited and I think he gets away with it. But with this, he's obviously matured and he's he's doing more nods to stuff than that. But Gilliam's all over this, I think. Um, Although it's a much more coherent story than him. Uh, yeah, he, he I guess. Up. But um, no, I just thought it was wonderful. I just like the idea he was so explicit about not worrying about the time travel paradox ideas and he just sort of he pushed that aside twice through moments of dialogue 
without it being heavy-handed, and it's just like... It, the first time is quite early on, the second time is about halfway through, and it, it's just a little, like, click reminder of, like, come on, this is an action film where yeah. just go along with it. And, it, yeah, it just... The rhythm of it was remarkable. You just, like, keep it going on. I mean, I even... It's nearly two hours long, and I was thinking... It can't end now, really, can it? How can he wrap it up in such a way that I'm going to be happy with it, but still sort of stay on his side? And yeah, he, he did it. He did it brilliantly, remarkably. He, I mean, he just threw in an emotional like punch, which I don't know whether was, I'm just getting a bit of a pussy in my older age or because of having children, but it really like it hit home with me. I know some people have a problem with what they call a tonal shift as in how things change a little bit in the latter but that's all there in the beginning it's 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 all set up anyway yeah i mean a couple of things i think it did particularly well going back to what you said about it occasionally comes up and waves and says don't worry about the logic of this i think it generally makes sense um i haven't seen it it's been a few months since i've watched it now i think there might have been something that bothered me about whether it does add up but who cares? Yeah. Um, but yeah, the initial thing when I was watching it was uh, Gordon Levitt's character seemed very unsympathetic at the beginning. And I thought, why am I going to side with this guy? And I think they do well to get that to work. Um, and also, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Going back to the don't worry about it. I think when those scenes came up, it didn't all, it also didn't feel like a complete cop out. Mm. Uh, so I think that's, it's quite an achievement that he's managed to do these things that I think a lot of other people would have really, drop the ball on um the last film i saw in england at the cinema uh killer joe william friedkin and tracy let's second film together they did bug a few years back um uh, what did it, matthew mcconaughey gina gershon um oh gosh thomas hayden church yes juno temple i think is the oh the yes and I know her from, uh, I remember Estelle taking me to see Centrinians at the cinema. Ooh. She did not. <laughs> is that on your irreconcilable differences list? Yeah, it is. <laughs> Inconcilable ah. ink. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I was looking forward to this massively. So you've got the setup is two people, the father and son. Stepfather, is it? I think his father and son, no. Yes, it is father and son, I think. And the mother's got another fella. Okay, yeah, and they want to put a hit out on her to get money. Mm -hmm. So they approach Killer Joe, who is uh, a shady policeman in the form of Matthew McConaughey, who I think is playing the same character that he was in Richard Linklater's Dazed and Confused, but 30 years on. I like to feel that's the way he turned out to be this uh, ambiguous Texas lawman who has problems and wants to have sex with young younger girls. Because he certainly seemed to <laughs> portray that very well in uh, Linklater's film. And, yeah, from there ensues very, very, very dark black humour. That's about it for me, because I thought this was a comedy. I, I thought it was hilarious. Oh, it certainly was tongue-in-cheek, I guess, or Kentucky Fried Chicken and cheek <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, this... We saw the trailer for this when we went to see Cosmopolis, um, and I think even though it had had some good reviews by then, it didn't look like a particularly interesting film. 
Um, but yeah, it did get some good reviews. I've checked it out in the last week. And um, yeah, I'm I'm a bit in two minds about it. I did enjoy it, and there's no question Freakin and Tracy Let here are doing some really great storytelling. So I'm going to give it a, a big thumbs up for that. It's, as you say, a black comedy, and I'm going to say it probably sounds a bit obvious, but it had a real feel of some of those Coen Brother movies like uh, Blood Simple and Fargo, the kind of updated noir. Um, and even though this is something that gets trotted out far too often, people go, oh, it's like this done by David Lynch. And that usually means it goes a bit surreal. Mm. Not in this case. I'm going to specifically in, in invoke um, Lynch's name just because of the sleaziness of it. Yeah. Yeah. How uncomfortable it is. And yeah, specifically the way women are treated in it very much reminded me of things like Wild at Heart and Blue Velvet. Um, and again, with that kind of tone to it that you're not sure whether it is played for laughs or is meant to repulse you or whatever. So I'm a little uncomfortable giving it a complete thumbs up, but it's no question for me. This is really good storytelling. I was hooked by it. Um, and it's, it builds to a really good ending. There's, there's a great finale to it. But yeah, I think to just set the tone, uh, to see Gina Gershon back here was great as well. I've not seen her in any films for quite a while. I'm not sure. Since Showgirls? I think she was in, sorry? Since Showgirls? Well, yeah, that's like 17 years ago or something, isn't Bound? it? Bound? Um, the last thing I think I saw in was a few episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm. I think she was playing a dry cleaner. But yeah, the, the tone for this is set in the, like, the first couple of minutes, isn't it? There's an extraordinary kind of shot in it, which we, we won't spoil. And yeah, we've alluded to Kentucky Fried Chicken as of several other, uh, reviewers and I think even the poster for it, perhaps. But yeah, that's an amazingly uncomfortable scene to watch. And you, you're, yeah, it brings out all sorts of strange, uh, emotions in you <laughs> um so yeah i i yeah i i like this but i have a few reservations about it but yeah it is great to see friedkin back doing just really good films you know i mean i don't think he's ever good just time has moved on and he's not going to get back to doing french connection and, and exorcist and, and sorcerer but to make a good low budget movie like this and given he's he's in his seventies now, I think, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Still doing great stuff. So, uh, yeah, I would, I would recommend this, but with few reservations, mm. maybe on being a liberal. Yes. Um, the dark Knight rises, certainly one of the big hits of this year. Um, we've already talked about, um, the Avengers or Avengers assemblers. It's called in the UK on the show, which, um, I really enjoyed. I remember you weren't so keen on Joss Whedon's dialogue, but no. you found it a really enjoyable film anyway. The Avengers. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's fun. Uh, I I did have a big issue with the way that he writes things. Um, mm. It just sounds like him writing stuff, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I think um, people like Tom Hiddleston brought something new to it, um, performance-wise. There's some great humour in there, and you know, for that ensemble kind of film, it worked really well. Um, but yeah, Christopher Nolan does it better. Well, yeah, I mean, just going back to what we were saying about Spider-Man and, you know, franchise superhero movies and people really needing to raise their game. The Avengers I really loved, and I think that was really extraordinary that they managed to get something to work that shouldn't have worked, getting all of those superheroes together and coming up with a, a fun action movie that was just really exciting. 
on Babbley. Um <laughs> Batman again um just really did something special I think. Um I've got to say with the previous Nolan films I enjoyed both of them watching them at the cinema when they came out but was a little bit I couldn't quite believe the amount of acclaim they were getting. I mean Batman Begins I remember enjoying up until the moment when he actually started to wear the Batman suits and do the voice. I still have a problem with the voice. Um Dark Knight with Heath Ledger um I enjoyed, but it felt like it was taking itself a little too seriously. Um, and was maybe forgetting that it should have been a fun superhero movie. In the last week, I've got to say I've watched all three of them um, oh. over over a few nights. So have I. Um, yeah? Yeah, I, uh, Estelle and I bought the Blu-ray box set for Christmas. And, uh, yeah, we watched, well, not over the last week, but over the last two weeks. Yeah. Uh, and I've got to say, watching them in order again, um, I've, I've really enjoyed them. And I think, yeah, looking at the other films that are going on around uh, these other superhero franchises, yeah, I've, I've, I've seen them with fresh eyes. I really enjoyed Dark Knight Rises at the cinema, but watching it now as part of a trilogy, even though, according to Nolan, it wasn't really planned that way. He was just trying to do what the best he could as he was going along with his collaborators. Um, it really does feel like a great trilogy. I'm, I am going to say, you know, I, I can't think of a better trilogy, actually. Um, as great as I love the first Star Wars films, I think everyone agrees the Ewoks kind of um, <laughs> brings problems to Return of the Jedi. Um, I'm not as big a fan of Lord of the Rings as many people. I, I, I kind of like it, but it feels very flabby. And I'm not really a fan of sword and sorcery fantasy things. This really works for me. I mean, we're both big comic book fans, and I think it just about gets it right in terms of grounding it in some kind of recognisable world, but also not forget it is a complete fantasy. You know, these things wouldn't happen. And But sort of going back to Looper, the fact that there are plot holes and, you know, problems like that um, doesn't really matter. I think you get completely sucked into the drama of it and the characters. Um, I really enjoyed Dark Knight Rises. Um, other criticisms that people have levelled at it are there's very little Batman in it, but I think that works. Mm. Like I say, I still have a problem with the voice and the, the suit just looks... You can't do anything with it, can you? Someone <laughs> with 20 years is always going to bring down your film's uh, best intentions. But no, I think it really works as a conclusion to it. I think Tom Hardy was great. Um, I mean... All the criticisms of his voice actually really quite like it, and it adds something very odd to it. I, I can't criticise. I think his voice is amazing. I, I, oh, I love it. It's yeah. like Sean Connery meets John Huston. Although I was listening to, um, I was listening to Movie Matters, uh, our friends Lydia Michael's podcast the other night, and they reviewed Frost Nixon. Mm. Um, and yet, Frank Langella as Nixon sounds exactly like this kind of voice. <laughs> That sounds great on Skype because you've got that slightly tinny sound to it. (laughs) We've got a few seconds of usable material from the whole recording session. (laughs) The Dark Knight Rises itself was really, really one of the best cinematic experiences I had. Not the best films I saw, best film I saw by any stretch of the imagination, but it was just, it was great because I was watching it with my nearly nine month pregnant wife in a French cinema um, that had no air conditioning and it was like a two and a half hour film. It was more than amusing, but she enjoyed it. So it, it, it enhanced the uh, 
experience for me. But yeah, I can't really add to anything apart from I think the understated hero from all of these films, the trilogy, is Michael Caine. It was just re- almost revelatory in some way because he became a real emotional sort of counterpoint or anchor to everything. He just came up every so often with these almost soliloquies and it could be deemed as lame or a bit, oh yeah, guff, but I I really, they really convinced me. It was like... I think he's very good in the first two films. Um, Yeah, I, I, I agree with you that it's good that they've taken Alfred from this... Well, he just needs someone who can, you know, back him up if he needs some help into someone who's providing him with a bit of conscience and, uh, you know, trying to keep him on the, trying to ground him or, or do what's best for him, for Bruce Wayne rather than Batman. Mm. The third one, I think he was given too many, um, too many, um, uh, he, he wasn't great at performing these emotional scenes when he was in, on the verge of tears all the time. And just <laughs> the actual dialogue he had to perform, it's, it is that classic thing of um, Harrison Ford saying to George Lucas, you can type this shit, but try saying it. Um, I don't <laughs> think he was really delivering that dialogue. Well, it should have maybe been slightly revised, but he was the he was the clunker for me in the third one. Oh, not Kane. at all. Not at all for me. No, like I mean, he, he really, really captured it all for me. Like I say, I don't know. I tell you, Jim, maybe you need to have kids. <laughs> up, man. <laughs> I'll be more likely to rip my finger off. Ah, <laughs> uh, God, we don't have to go on sometimes. We will destroy Gotham, and then, when it is done, and Gotham is ashes. Then you have my permission to die. Okay, so those are films that both of us watched, but uh, obviously there are films that I've watched and Phil hasn't, and vice versa, and uh, there are a few we'd like to mention. So firstly for me, Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, uh, which I'm sure everyone will be familiar with. Um, I, by the time this came out a couple of months back, I was approaching it with a little bit of trepidation because I've been looking forward to it all year. Um, I was a huge fan of There Will Be Blood, and Anderson's other films, admittedly, Magnolia took me a little while to warm to. Um, but then when this came out, a lot of the reviews were not 100% critical, but a lot a lot of people saying, oh, there's no plot to this and it doesn't go anywhere. Um, others seemingly disappointed that it wasn't a big tirade against Scientology. I'm, I'm sure people know the plot, but it's whacking Phoenix as um, traumatized naval serviceman, ex-naval serviceman after World War II falls in with Philip Seymour Hoffman as this guru figure. Um, I really enjoyed this. I mean, it wasn't as immediate as There Will Be Blood, but I think that's a good thing, that having had that success, he didn't just do the same film over again in a different setting. This is definitely a much more character-based film. But yeah, it's like nearly two and a half hours, but it's that classic thing. It never, you know, I was never looking at my watch or anything during it. Wagon Phoenix is fantastic in it, so is Hoffman. Um, I do look forward to watching it again. Um, and I just think it's great that, um, I mean, something I've said certainly a lot over past shows is it seems that with filmmaking, the more money that's invested in a film, the kind of the dumber it gets or the more mainstream, more compromised it has to be. Um, people may know this had an unusual kind of financing deal. It was, um, uh, it was financed by the daughter of the founder of Oracle, I think, uh, Larry, Ella, Larry Ellison's daughter. 
but yeah, just in general, Anderson's a really serious-minded um, filmmaker who seems uncompromising, but still making movies on an epic scale. He's not making small-scale... He has made small-scale indie films, but it's great to have something which, yeah, seems... I'm going to say comparable with Kubrick, really. It's, um, I mean, um, it's a shame you've not had a chance to see it yet, Phil, but I'm sure we'll be uh, remedying that soon. Yeah, it was. it's just come out in France yesterday at the cinema. Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, a bit late, a bit late here. Um, so I was trying to bend Estelle's ear to uh, <laughs> to try and persuade her to drive me down because I'm still out of action with my finger, so I can't drive myself to the cinema at the moment. Uh, but it's looking unlikely because she's going to go back to work soon. So uh, I don't know. It might it might stay on for a bit longer. Uh, I'd definitely love to see it on the big screen. Uh, yeah, I'm amazed it's taken that long to come out because it's like been now two months here in the rest of the world. I mean. Yeah, it's strange. I'm not I'm not quite sure myself, but um, I don't know. It's a funny country, France. Uh, and the other one I've got to mention, which uh, again, it feels like I'll be reheating everybody else's reviews of it, but Skyfall, um, the latest James Bond film, I really loved this. Um, I mean, it felt like classic Bond. It really delivered the goods, but at the same time, it did do something fresh. I mean, again, due to budgetary reasons, because uh, MGM was in trouble and brought up this, a lot of this is set in London, which actually is such an unusual setting for Bond, which you're used to, you know, globe trotting. Daniel Craig, I know Phil's not a fan of, but I think he's really great in this. Um, I'm really warm to him now, and he seems to make the other Bonds almost seem a bit redundant. Um, Javier Bardem's great in it, a really good villain. And just, again, a little like The Dark Knight, it's taken a, a franchise that people are maybe overly familiar with and can be seen as a bit of a joke and has really reinvigorated it. Um, I really look forward to seeing the next two films that Craig signed up for and which... I think uh, there, are, there are quite advanced plans for what's going to be happening with those. And finally, just the fact that, I mean, I watched this twice, and both times it's great to see it with a big audience who seem to be really behind it, rather than just, oh, this is a, this is some entertainment for a Saturday night. They seem to be really, really involved in it and, and pleased that they were seeing a James Bond that lived up to their expectations. So um, I'm not sure you'll be in such a rush to watch that, will you, Phil? I'm not at all, no. Uh, Estelle's already seen it um, dubbed into French in a cold church hall um, in, our, in our village. Um, Gosh. I'm, I'm quite glad I missed that, actually. Okay, and um, you've got a few films uh, you'd like to mention? Yeah, I've just got a few here that um, honourable mentions from my top ten, really. Um, I, I think I mentioned it before, but yeah, uh, out of my top ten this year, like seven of them were foreign language films, and um, uh, um, there was Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, which we looked over before, and another Turkish film I really enjoyed, which actually came out a couple of years ago called Cosmos, um, which is a quite strange um, sort of magic. What, oh, what's Gabriel Garcia Marquez's... Magic realism? Magic realism. It has a magic realism feel to it. Heightened sense of reality, and um, it's it's quite hard to explain what the plot is, but it's uh, <clears throat> it goes through all the range of emotions and theological questions, political questions. Um, it's quite profound, quite deep, um, quite confusing, amazing to look at. Um, it's just a great oddball film that I definitely recommend um, another film that I enjoyed as well was Bruno Dumont's Haderich 
which is not going to be everyone's cup of tea. A very languorous, slow-moving film about a young, um, pious girl who, who um, is deeply in love with Jesus, and she becomes embroiled somehow with um, some Muslim extremists. And I, I'll leave it at that because it's it's quite mind-boggling how this film works. But Dumont's quite um, renowned or infamous for being. I don't know best way. He's he's not as upfront and provocative as someone like Gaspar Noé, but um, his films definitely uh, push people's buttons. Again, I'd I'd really recommend that one, but it's not going to be for everyone. And just two more quickly: uh, an Austrian film called Michael by Marcus Schleinzer, I think, who used to work with uh, Michael Haneke, who is. Um, getting a lot of praises for his latest film Amor at the moment, which I haven't seen um, it's a story about a man who keeps a child locked away in a basement and it's actually very darkly humorous in many ways um, it's not what you'd expect it to be, uh, it poses lots of questions but they're not accusatory they're, it's very unbiased um, which might distress people but I, I really enjoyed it yeah, I just saw the trailer for that the other day, and it did just the way the trailer's done gives you enough information that you don't really want to go much further with it. <laughs> um, but, you know, yeah, I might check that out. And lastly, uh, another great film was The Touring Horse by our good friend Bellatar. <laughs> friend of the show. <laughs> Extremely slow-moving film about the horse that in, um, might have caused uh, Nietzsche's breakdown. Um, it's just the, the days, the hours afterwards about the owner of the horse and his um, daughter who live in this windswept cabin in the middle of nowhere. Not a great deal ha- happens, but a bit like um, Cosmos, it's... it's it actually feels quite profound but it's extremely cinematic amazing score um, the imagery is second to none really I mean he's always he's got an incredible visual ITAR anyway um, it's just sad that it's his last film really and that's that's it for me um, I could keep talking about other stuff that I've discovered but <laughs> we don't we don't want to turn this into a two-parter no 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 uh, in fact, we'll probably get some feedback from the listeners. Oh, has it? I can do more damage on my laptop sitting in my pyjamas before my first cup of Earl Grey than you can do in a year in the field. Oh, so why do you need me? Every now and then a trigger has to be pulled. Or not pulled. It's hard to know which in your pyjamas. Okay, so that was uh, some of our highlights and lowlights from 2012. Um, we put out a little message on Twitter and Facebook, probably just in the last 24 hours or so, uh, asking you guys what some of your highlights and lowlights were. So thanks to everyone who's contributed. Um, Phil, do you want to kick off? Yeah, I'll kick off with uh, Andrew Humphrey from Facebook. Hi, Andrew. Uh, My major rediscovery was my favourite film from childhood, Lost in the Desert, which appeared in full-on YouTube. I posted it to your page a few months ago. I remember. I remember this. <clears throat> it's been logged onto my uh, YouTube uh, favourites thing, but unwatched. So apologies, but I'm going to get on the case. A bit of googling shows that many forty-somethings are haunted by it, having seen it on a double bill with a Ray Harryhausen film in the seventies. 
it's only ever screened now as an example of wrong children's films because the story is so harsh. The South African director went on to make the Gods Must Be Crazy series. I created a Facebook page for it, uh, Lost in the Desert, Durkey in brackets, but minimal interest so far. It's still good, I think, but would never be made as a children's movie now. Okay, thanks, Andrew. Uh, Lyndon Dunham, hi, mate. Uh, very disappointed by Dread 3D. Squalidly violent with none of the satirical wit of the original comic. First 3D I've seen and don't really understand what all the fuss is about. It looks like one of those fold-out and glue cardboard models you used to get on the back of cereal packets when I was a kid. I also quite liked Pandorum, an intriguing alien-style sci-fi horror from 2009, which appears to have died a death at the box office, slightly spoiled by its MTV-style editing. I wish Ridley Scott had made this instead of Prometheus. I think the film I enjoyed most was The Black Windmill, a 70s thriller directed by Don Siegel and featuring Michael Caine. A lot of people, including Caine himself, don't like it very much, but I think it's a really interesting collision between American and British-European styles. An underrated gem, up there with the island. Uh, cheers for that. I have seen some of Black Windmill and wasn't too taken with it, but um, yeah, a lot. I've, I've, I've seen Pandorum. I saw that at the cinema. I didn't like it at all. Oh, dear. But it was quite boring. I'm, I'm going to check it out. Eric Nystrom. I saw Simon, King of the Witches, for the first time and loved it. A very funny, strange and inspired movie from the 70s. Recommended. Yeah, I think that gets a lot of love in uh, Nightmare USA, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. It does indeed. Thanks, Eric. Uh, Stuart Barr, Discoveries. Discovering I shouldn't have been putting off watching The Red Shoes for 42 years because it's a dance movie. Hands down, the single best film I've watched last year. Uh, so, yeah, Powell and Pressburger, which I know you're a fan of. The Archers. Uh, yeah, Thanks, Jesus. I bought the Criterion Blue of this this year. Um, wow. I don't know, I can't add to that. Eh? <laughs> superlatives? Do you want more superlatives? No, that'll do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thanks, Stuart. On Cheers. to uh, old friend Hans Johansson. Had a few discoveries of note this year, but if amounts of rewatches are anything to go by, I'd have to say Miami Connection. It has, if nothing else, been my most frequently revisited movie, for reasons I can't sensibly explain. Defined so bad it's good and endlessly quotable. I'd not heard of Miami Connection until Hans posted it up, but um, I've got to say that this morning, because my neighbours woke me up at about five in the morning, I was looking through uh, Rupert Pupkin's site. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it seems to crop up quite a lot there. It's um, I'm intrigued. It does sound quite remarkable. Um, I'll be checking out the trailer for that maybe a bit later today. Andy Warner, hi Andy, watched Kiss Kiss Bang Bang last night, tongue in cheek, bad but good, detective story with a narrator who can't narrate very well and apologises for it. Robert Downey is good as a small time crook, Val Kilmer is an interesting choice for a gay PI. Uh, some good one liners, start slow but twists and turns into a good action movie. Some bits have me laughing out loud, some cringing, some ahhing. I should have rehearsed how to do that. <laughs> um, at 149 HD rental from iTunes, well worth it. Uh, cheers, Andy. Shane Black scripted that. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, maybe he even directed it. Shane Black, who's doing Iron Man 3. Yeah, I think possibly, yeah, I think you're right. But he did his best thing in Predator, <laughs> I think. I don't know. It's up for debate. Die Hard or mm. Last Boy Scout. Oh, I'm very familiar with that. Um, I was I was happy when um, 
I care how I phrase it. When Tony Scott died, I was very happy that some sites put up the uh, Friday night's a great night for football sequence from the beginning <laughs> of that. What a tribute. And on to Twitter, our very good friend, Chris Salt. Hey, Chris. Um, Hi. characters, so these are going to be a little bit more brief. Leos Carax, I'm presuming because Holy Motors came out, so he's been discovering, uh, uh, oh, what's it called? Bad Blood, Sanfoir? No, Cold Blood, that is. Song, Bad Blood. Mauvais, Mauvais Song. Song Mauvais. <laughs> Look, I've been living in France for three months and I still can't speak French. Uh, I'm going to let you get on with it. Seijun Suzuki, who I've also been discovering. Amazing. Oh my god, all of his films are well worth checking out. Branded Skill, Tokyo Drifter. Uh, yeah, mind boggling. And Arrow's Revelatory Zombie Flesh Eaters Blue. Cheers, Chris. Uh, Becky Simpson, I watched Possession for the first time in 2012, and it totally floored me. Incredible, intense film. Uh, Johnny is incredible. Uh, she certainly is, yeah. No, I watched that for the first time this year. It's uh, it's quite something, isn't it? I'm sure we've talked about it before on the show. We must have, because we did like on the Silver Globe, so Zalabski. Mm-hmm. Big fan of Zalabski. Uh, yeah. I always think it's a shame, though, that in some way Possession's his most famous or infamous film because I think all of his films are as equally insane and bordering on a kind of madness that you can only read or dream or watch about it's it's quite he's a quite unique filmmaker I think Zalewski. I guess Possession has the, the draw of Ajani and um, Sam Neill Sam Neill yeah and uh, Carlo Rebaldi yeah <laughs> The model maker, yeah. It's just a broided ET. <laughs> yes, that'll be a hell of a double bill. Uh, cheers, Becky. Thanks, Becky. And finally, Wilson McCool. <laughs> McCool, yeah. McCool, uh, I've been chatting to you quite a lot recently on my own personal uh, Twitter feed. Uh, best discovery, Hirokazu Koryada, Distance and Afterlife are practically perfect. Erdol and still walking and not far behind. This is great. Uh, I don't know this director, filmmaker, writer, producer. I don't know. I don't know any of those films either. No, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to plead ignorance as well. I did quickly look him up on uh, Wikipedia, but um, not someone I'm familiar with, but that's that's good. Um, hopefully, we might check him out in the next year. So, thanks for that, Wilson. That's what we want. Yeah, yeah. thanks. Okay, so thanks a lot to everyone. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for all the input. It was it was very uh, on the spare at the moment, and well, I mean, I've been looking back at um, the the podcast feed, and people keep downloading us. So we've done something right over the last year or so. So thanks very much. Yeah, hopefully that's not stopped doing the show. Is uh, (laughs) (laughs) taking a six month break. Just remember what I said. If you don't want to get hurt. You don't scare me at all. Jane, I want to talk at to you all. later. Goodbye. So that was our look back at some of the uh, some of the films of 2012. And that's it from us, um, because we haven't really got any regular... Well, we haven't got any plans to bring back the show on a regular basis, uh, I'm afraid. I'm sure people are going to be understanding of this, but uh, your domestic situation's got very busy recently, hasn't it, Phil? It has indeed. Um, a new child... New, uh, new country, new job, uh, and we're, new finger. 
new finger planning on moving into a new house in the next couple of months as well so yeah it's uh it's crazy busy for me at the moment unfortunately yeah so, and, and i might repaint my there. front room at some point sorry i might repaint my front room at some point as well <laughs> this crazy busy world that we occupy oh um but yeah you do keep subscribed to us because uh we might get a few bits and pieces out uh during the year, but we wouldn't want to make any promises. Um, so, uh, yeah, I just want to say thanks to everyone who's listened to this show and all the others, and everyone who's contributed. It's been really fantastic fun to do, uh, and we do hope to see you again before too long. Yeah, it has. I'll just reiterate, yeah, it's been great. It's been fun. It was excellent meeting people at Fright Fest the other year and meeting up for various drinks and stuff, and... Not only have we gained listeners, we've gained friends as well. So it's definitely awesome. Yeah. It's been been really good, and yeah, I'm sure we'll be on, manage to get some specials out. And um, plus, I stay in touch with a lot of you via Twitter, and we'll keep the Facebook page going and the blog. So we're we're not going to disappear entirely. Yeah, and, and and fingers crossed, you might be over in the UK for Fright Fest this year. So hope we can meet up with a few people again. I'll try to cross my fingers. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, uh, bad choice of words. <laughs> okay then, so yeah, thanks again, and we hope to see you again soon. So enjoy the rest of 2013 till we see you again. Cheerio, au revoir. Okay, bye-bye. DJ, drop a beat. That's right, Gotham. My brain, yes, that's my name. When you hear the name, then I guarantee the pain. I'm coming after you, Bruce Wayne. I'm stronger, smarter, clinically insane. My brain, that's my name. Bruce Wayne in the Batman, I'm totally the same. I broke his back, Mortal Kombat smack. Then I cracked my 28 Krug champagne. Who likes hip Yes, it's a shame. I declare martial law and you all complain. I laugh when you ask why I wear the mask. I'll explain. It's because I'm Bane. Yes, that's my name. You say it too much, the name becomes a name. Of course, something my plan lacks gain. You say it to my face, I'll crash your plane. When I say no, you say survival. No, no. When I say no, you say survival. You suck. Who said that? Hey! Stop the music! Kill them all!